really grateful for um, all the men to get this set up for me. I've uh, been trying to do remain standing, and who knows how the Lord will work in these legs, but um, you know that we're about four weeks beyond the COVID, which was uh, right after being hit with all kinds of muscle issues in the month of January, and one was just uh, stacked on top of another, including the diabetes return, very high numbers, um, uh, emergency room visit, and we were wondering what would happen over time once we get sufficiently past uh, those uh, the bout with COVID. The whole family was hit at the same time. And um, so we started to strengthen, and then, but now we really feel that for stability, this would maybe be a better arrangement. Be more like me talking to you. It's a little different um, than just standing up higher and preaching. But it is a message um, from the Lord. It is preaching. We'll probably be moving a little slower uh, than usual. Also, just for me, not knowing the future, of course, none of us know the future. It gives me a little more of a chance personally to talk to you. I'm mostly concerned in my themes that we have um, here, different messages that I choose to preach from, that it's personal for you, that we're talking mostly about you and your spiritual life, and of course, riveting our attention on that cross of the Lord Jesus, but that we really want to shore up your faith. What is God calling you to do in the future? What is, how is God going to work in your life? It's going to require godliness. It's going to require uh, persistence. And it's most certainly going to require a, a faith that can withstand trials. So I hope maybe this has that flavor, that it's a little more personal, at least for however many weeks the Lord has this uh, designed for us. I fully intend to preach the full counsel of God's Word. That's always been our goal in the pulpit ministry is to not jump around to the pastor's favorite topics, but work through books of the Bible, occasionally have uh, selected texts as well. But we want to proclaim the full counsel of God to you, just as we've done paragraph by paragraph, word by word. Sometimes we go a little faster through a passage, sometimes we zero in a little bit more and we think about what it really means. These are unique times in the history of our church and I kind of prayed and sought from the Lord what would be best and so this is the kind of uh, the thematic and um, uh, preaching emphasis that I'd like to have here for the next however many weeks we get. I want God to continue to use the pulpit ministry. I pray for that. I hope that in your prayers... One of the most strategic things you can pray for, for this church and the future of the church, is for the pulpit ministry. Our entire philosophy of ministry as a church flows from the pulpit out into the classrooms, to the seminars, that we want God's Word exposed, explained, applied, and it starts right here uh, in an example. Um, we um, are facing the weakness of a senior pastor, and possibly the Lord will be calling me home. And if he does, I won't have anything to complain about because the folks singing next to me will be better than the folks singing next to you. I'm sure of it. <laughs> no, really, when you start thinking about it, there's no comparison, and uh, we just don't like to think about it. But it is a reality, and I know God's will is God's will, and I want to follow God's will. I don't ever want to be found not following God's will because if I weren't, I know, number one, I wouldn't win anyways because God always gets his will, right? Right? And number two, I'd miss out on all the joy and special design 
that God has for those that jettison their will and pick up God's will for their life. It is always good. In fact, Romans 12.2 says, we will prove or even approve what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And that's amazing, that God's will is really to be described as good and perfect towards us. Think on that, because that's also God's will for your life as well. So this morning, it's going to be our privilege to unfold and explain a passage from Matthew chapter 17. I know it says differently in your newsletter. I already gave apologies to Colleen about it. But turn to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 17. I'm going to read verses 1 through 23, but we're going to actually just pick up an exposition from verse 14. So that's Matthew 17, and I'll read 1 to 23. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. This is called the uh, Mount of Transfiguration. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, is it good for us to be here? It is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Well, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has been risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and, he did not, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Now here's where we're going to pick up our exposition from verse 14. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long? Shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible to you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. 
And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Well, the last story the reader of Matthew encounters there is a triumphant and a magnificent account uh, in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. We call it the Mount of Transfiguration. But what does that mean? That means Jesus was kind of turned inside out where the reality of who he was inwardly became displayed externally. And now everybody could see who this man, who on the outside wouldn't look too differently than, you know, an average guy uh, in the Middle East, what this guy was really like, he was divine. He shone forth God's glory from the inside out. It's really the magnificent transfiguration of Jesus Christ. And through that inspired text, really as we read that, we have the privilege of, we might say, climbing high up on the mountain with them. And uh, along with those disciples and getting to see Jesus in a way nobody got to see Jesus before. And we got to see through their eyes the radiant glory of Jesus Christ. Think of that, being transformed right in front of you. And no, there's no TV screen, it's all real. And you're like, wow, what is going on? And as we read that portion of the text, we see Jesus' face shine. Like what? Like the bright sun. Like something you see in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, when John got to see Jesus on the island of Patmos, but transformed as well. And we see Jesus' garments become white as light, as brilliant as lightning right in front of them. And we behold Moses and Elijah in their heavenly glory, dressed differently. They're conversing with the Son of God in glory. And we're like, wow, that's an amazing look into eternity. And then we tremble with fear along with the disciples, trying to figure out something to say like Peter did. Maybe we should build three tabernacles here. And of course... He doesn't know what to say. He's just amazed at Christ's brilliance. And what an exciting and a rare glimpse into the divine nature of Jesus himself. That vision on the mountain was meant to strengthen your faith and my faith in this one we follow called Jesus Christ. We are to look upon him as the glorious and the powerful one and see in that, yes, I made the right decision to follow him. Look at all of his power. Look at all the glory that he has access to. And what does that do to a believer? What does that do to the reader of the Gospel of Matthew or one of you? It, it excites your soul. It enlivens your faith. It causes you to do something more for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom. Yes, all of that is meant to build our faith, to build the faith. But, of course, there are things that we see here now that are quite different. Rather than ascending a mountain to all of this glory as we read in the previous verses, now we get to go down the mountain. And the feel of this story that we're encountering today is quite different than the feel of going up for triumph and being up at the top and everything is great. Now they're literally on the way down the mountain and it seems like from a perspective, <laughs> everything's going downhill anyways. Well, so we're not ascending the mountain we're descending the mountain. We're not going up high to commune with the holy God. In this text, we're kind of coming down and we're immediately meeting sinful men 
with all of their problems, and now we're trying to figure out how to cope with all of that. We do not behold the power of God down below. We see this father complaining that the power of God ain't working for his son, and his son is a lunatic, and he's very bothered by that. We don't hear a thunderous voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, follow him, listen to him. This is my beloved son. We don't even get that below. We just get kind of the the cries of people wondering, what is going on here? It's disappointment that replaces anticipation. It's annoyance. Can you actually believe that? Annoyance from the Lord Jesus Christ that replaces the excitement of being up in glory. And it is failure that replaces triumph in seeing the miraculous will of God accomplished. Boy, the contrast between these two sections inside of Matthew 17 could not be more stark. One thrills our souls. The other makes us shake our head in disbelief. Why am I a Christian again? Why am I following the Lord Jesus Christ? Why do I utter those prayers? One section makes us want to stand up and shout hallelujah, as I said, The other wants to make us just clump down in a chair with a sigh and say, well, that's just the way the world is, filled with trouble and no way to solve problems. Well, I don't know if you felt all those feelings reading and contrasting those two, but that's the flavor and text of them, the flavor of the text there. Um, There is always a ray of hope in the darkest hour and in the way in which we look at life when one failure after another seems to pile on top of us. There is always a ray of hope because the one who shined in glory on the mountain remains the same one who condescends to meet our needs down below. He's the same one stretching us, stretching our faith, calling on us to persevere. The God has not changed. And so that gives us a ray of hope. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, yes, even unto tomorrow, right? Hebrews chapter 13. The paradox in the passage, too, kind of is like the last one. The last one that showed us the power of God, the transformation of Christ. Here, that one wanted to strengthen the faith of believers. And this passage also showing the weakness of believers' faith is designed to strengthen us as well. This passage looks at the issue of faith backwards. It forces us to look at the unnecessary pains that people who have little faith have to endure. Why is it again that we don't believe in Jesus? Excuse me, why is it that we have little faith towards Jesus and not larger faith? Look at how those that exercised a weaker faith had to suffer. Is that how you want to be? Really, it looks at faith backwards and says, I don't want to be like that. I want my faith to grow. I want my faith to be used by God. And here I see where weak faith runs into a wall and cannot handle anything at all. You might say this relates somewhat to our situation at Hope Bible Church. There are always changes going on at a church. But here we faced a really difficult time not just for a year, but uh, with our whole pastoral situation, um, be praying for our elders and 
the decisions that we have to make to make sure our pastoral staff is well supplied and you are well cared for and the ministries go for, forward, the opportunities are seized, God's hand is seen at work. There's so many of you, I look out there and I think, you would have already been at my house if things were different. I would have already been having a conversation with you. Why? I'd be looking to see how God may have gifted you. I'd be looking to see what passions God has laid on your heart. I would be looking to see what needs are in your family so I could spur your faith on so that God would use you more. I see all this untapped potential of ministry and evangelism and, and missions and, yes, electronic and audio work and work in small groups and you name it with the children, with the worship ministry, with counseling ministry. And I look at all this untapped potential out there and the elders are well aware we want your faith to enlarge, we want you to grow. We want you to realize church isn't just a place you come to. You, you are the church, and you're always the church. Thus, the message last week, you're part of the body of Christ, an important member all the time, and God wants to use you no matter what happens to me or to others, that God has you down here for a distinct purpose, and He's working the application of His Word in your life, and you can't keep your head down. You need to stir up your gift as well. How will God use you? How can you step out in faith? What obstacles are you needing to overcome? And I pray for that. I pray you're aware of that. I pray that it's not just about you. It's about God in you. It's about He who is greater than the one in the world arising above and using someone who really doesn't know God all that well and needs to come to know God better and, and use a man or a woman like that in a greater way. That's what I see when I think about growing your faith. Folks that are younger coming up and I see singing our special music, other people that are younger stepping up and saying, I want to be used in evangelism. I want to be helpful in administration because I see how that organizes things and events for others. Man, that's exciting to see the body of Christ activated with a growing faith. You know, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, it teaches how important faith is to service and to worship, how important faith is both to our worship of God and our service of Him. You'll notice that when the devil came to the Lord Jesus Christ in the wilderness, both in Matthew chapter 4 and in Luke chapter 4, the devil is a religious being, and he wanted worship, and he basically wanted Jesus to do what? You remember, fall down and worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms. And he first tempted Jesus with turning the stones into bread, right? But it was always evil that he wanted from him. He was always trying to get Jesus to do his own will and not the will of the Father. So he was always in some way attacking the faith that Jesus had in God the Father, that God was good and that God would give the kingdom to him if he followed God and obeyed God. Satan wanted to attack the roots of Jesus' obedience and the roots of Jesus' obedience was his undying faith and trust in God the Father, right? Whatever God the Father wanted the Son to do, he would always do it. In fact, he said, I always do the will of my Father. So if the devil could attack the roots of that, he would go after trust, that trust 
bond trust relationship that Jesus Christ had with God the Father. What is that trust? It's faith. It's a total, complete faith in God the Father that His Word is always true, His plan is always right, that God's, the Father's heart is always good, and He can follow God the Father unreservedly. We learned in the last couple of messages or so that in prayer we're exhorted to ask and it will be given, seek, and you will find, knock, and the door will be open to you. Why? Because God is genuine, genuinely good through and through. He can't be otherwise. You study His attributes in a theology proper class and you see every one of His attributes, from His patience and graciousness to His justice and even His wrath, it's all good, it's all pure, it's all holy, and He exercises those attributes in perfect harmony according to His own wisdom for your benefit, even the death of His Son on a cross for your benefit. In Matthew, we've seen Jesus here um, reading, either correcting people with little faith or encouraging people on to greater faith. Let me give you some examples here so that you will log away in your mind this morning how important faith is to God and to Jesus, how important faith is in your life to God and Jesus. I want you to see this. For example, and you can flip to them, but I'm going to probably go too quickly. In Matthew chapter 8 and verse 10, Jesus was speaking of the centurion at the town of Capernaum right next to the Sea of Galilee, right? Capernaum. And he said, and he marveled and said to those who were following him, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. What does that mean? That means that he had been going around from town to town in Israel and no one had exercised as great faith as this centurion who said, Lord, you don't even have to go to my house to heal. All you need to do is speak the word. I know all about authority and I know your word is authoritative. Just say it and my servant will be healed. That's when Jesus marveled and said, that's the kind of faith I want to see in every Jew, but I haven't found it yet. Woo, how important faith, operative in the life of a believer, is to Jesus. Think about your own life now, right now. Think about your own life. And then in Matthew 8, same chapter, verse 26, he said to the disciples in the boat who were worrying about a storm that was coming and was going to overthrow them and kill them, and he said, why are you afraid? You men of, do you remember how he finished that? Little faith. He did not call them unbelievers because they weren't unbelievers. They were true believers. But he said, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? And I think to myself, Thomas, oh, thou doubting Thomas, you, you are one of those at times with little faith. In fact, you are one of those more often than you realize of not claiming hold of the promises of God and believing them as surely as they are stated in the Word of God. And then there's Matthew chapter 9 and verse 2. Trek with this. It says, they brought Jesus, a paralytic, lying on a bed. Now, you know, they had different kinds of beds in those days, so it was a little easier to transport. But they lowered him down into the building. Remember that? And seeing their, and this is how Matthew writes it, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Well, how could that be? Because he saw their faith. How did they get their sins forgiven? Because 
They had faith. That meant something to God. Oh, notice, notice he saw even their faith, the ones bringing the paralytic, trusting that Jesus Christ would do this poor man well. Then there's Matthew 13, verses 57, 58. It says that Jesus' own hometown took offense at him, and uh, they did not do many miracles in Nazareth. Why not? Because there it says the town was filled with unbelief. Then there was a hemorrhaging woman in Matthew 9, 22. And it says, Jesus turned to the woman, and seeing the woman there, he said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. And at once, the woman was made well. That's an example of supernatural healing on the part of Christ. So back and forth, embedded not only in the Gospel of Matthew, we could easily turn to Mark and Luke, and see in those synoptic gospels the same recurrent theme, Jesus and God honor our faith. When we believe something is not just possible, but it is something that God is going to do. I often say, and people ask, Pastor, when you pray something like that, are you confident God's going to give you exactly what you ask? And the answer is usually, yes, I am. And I say, but sometimes I know that there are things I don't see, I don't know, I can't fit into a, uh, a, a greater picture puzzle of the future and of what, what God is doing, but I know this, I know that God is going to give me exactly what I ask, or He has decided to give me something better than I have asked, because He knows me and He knows the situation better, and uh, just like when our children would come to us and they ask for something and we might get a curious little smile come across our face, thinking, you know, thinking to ourselves, this might be a great time, not just to give little Johnny X, Y, and Z, but I've got another idea here that he is absolutely going to love even more than that. That, beloved, is how God is with us. He's a good and a gracious God. Well, again, to say that people's faith was important to Jesus Christ is a great understatement. He evaluated their entire readiness to see the power of God operative in their lives on that one criteria. If you have faith, you will see the power and the glory of God. Did he really say that? Yes, he did. Christ's message to us could be summed up in the words that he told to dear Martha in the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verse 40, where he told Martha, did I not tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God. Man, how exciting. What happened? Martha wanted Jesus to arrive at their home before his brother Lazarus died. Why? Because Martha knew by experience that God, that Jesus, could heal a man very sick. But somehow her mind had not gone to Jesus could raise someone from the dead. And Jesus wanted Martha to see yeah, it's not just healings that I can give out. It's what? Resurrections. And that, friends, is far deeper and far greater because even Lazarus' resurrection, really, we call a resuscitation because he would die again, but the resurrection you and I are going to get in the end times, which who knows how close we are to it, is one that patterns itself after the resurrection of Jesus' body itself, whom Philippians chapter 3 defines as being one that is 
permanently changed with a power that transforms the very nature of physics itself. Amazing. Beloved, all of that to say, it is impossible in your life to please God. It is impossible for you to be kind, become the kind of godly man or woman you want to be. It is impossible for you to really be walking the way God wants you to walk unless you have faith in God, unless you believe in the Lord and in His promises. Uh, you cannot please God without faith, without stopping to rely on the promises of God. And I feel for some of you who are stronger and richer and tougher and deeper and nobody pushes you around and nobody outdoes you at something and no one has greater charm than you in some area. No one has more power than you in such and such an area. There it may be harder for you to recognize your weaknesses. May it might, might be harder to realize, brother, sister... God is going to use you, maybe even in greater ways because you are weaker. Because if you weren't weaker, then people might be coming and running up to you and saying, man, you are so cool, you are one of the, you know, and you may be famous in the world. You, you cut an album there and you had a number one record and now you're in a church and that's so cool and great. And you would look past the power of the Holy Spirit and the work of grace of the Lord Jesus Christ inside a sinner, and you might attribute all of the grace and the power and the credit to someone else rather than to Jesus. We, we tend to do that kind of thing. And so God breaks us down. God humbles us. God lowers us, our mentality of ourselves, our understanding of our ability to do things. And then when you're kind of lower like that, then when you'd suffered a little more like that, Maybe, just maybe, he will say, I have a more useful servant here now for the kinds of things I want to see done. In the words of 2 Timothy chapter 2, I think it's verse 20, he said, you know, in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware. There are some vessels to honor, some to dishonor. If you cleanse yourself from these other things then you will be more useful to the master. You will be prepared for every good work. That's an exciting place to be. Well, it all starts with a sigh from the mouth of the Lord Jesus. He sighs due to the unbelieving and perverted generation. Look at verse 17. And then he moves to the question of the disciples in verse 19. Why could we not cast out the demons? And then to Jesus' answer in verse 20 because of the littleness of your faith. And then he moves to the focal point and the climax of the narrative, and that is, look at verse 20, Jesus' statement there, even if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, nothing will be impossible to you. So we start with a sigh, we move to the question, then we move to Jesus' answer, and then we see the focal point of the narrative, and that's in verse 20. Do you sense weakness of faith in your own life? Do you want to grow in faith? Well, this passage then is for you. All right, four practical lessons about weak faith. We're going to grow in faith by looking at faith in a converse way. So we're giving out to you today and next time, God willing, four practical lessons about weak 
faith because I trust that you have some faith and you're not an unbeliever. And by the way, I don't want to sound like I'm chastising any of you because I've rubbed shoulders with you in prayer, some of you before, some of the men and women in our congregation, and I know at times you've had some strong faith, and I have benefited by being there as well, just praying together, envisioning together, thinking together, brainstorming together. Do we have the resources to do that? No, but it doesn't matter. We need to go ahead anyway. Is that kind of faith? And so we have men and women here that pray that way, and I'm so happy to be around them. But a lot of the time, we dwell and live in the weak faith category, but I trust that you're not in the no faith category because then none of the promises of God can you claim for yourself. Come to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Trust that He died on the cross for you. Know that He was raised bodily from the dead and cry out to Him to save you from your sins. He will, and He will today, and He will instantly because He loves you and because He cares for you. And that's how you become a Christian, a believer in God. Lesson number one, how to spot weak faith. If you were to take a microscope, if you were to try to put a spotlight down there, could you spot it? Is it really there or am I kind of hanging you out to dry? Is there weak faith that is there? Well, look at your text. We're zeroing in on verses 14 through 16. And then it says, when they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with, your, with you? Bring him here to me. And then I'll, I'll kind of stop there. But back in verse 9, we were told that the disciples and Jesus came down the mountain to join the other nine disciples. Well, by verse 14, they found them already, but there's a situation that's going on. And the first thing that they meet is not the nine, but the crowd. And out of the crowd comes a father with a demon-possessed son, and he comes running towards them. And the man looks desperate. We can only imagine the pain that this man felt. In Luke chapter 9, verse 38, it tells us that this was the man's only son, and that just heightens the problem. And so he came begging for mercy, and he fell on his knees before them. Take that as a, what that means, fell on his knees before them. I mean, he's really desperate. And um, he begged, Lord, have mercy on my son. That's begging. Begging God. Have you ever been there? No one else to turn to, and so he's begging. And he calls Jesus Lord. I don't know how deep his understanding of Jesus' lordship went at that point in time, but at least he knows he's a man of authority over demons. He was there to heal and able to heal. And he's pleading now for mercy in a humble fashion before the Lord. He's demanding absolutely nothing from Jesus Christ. I think if he were alive today, we might say that he would reject the kind of teachings that are sometimes seen on the health and wealth channels on TV who say that they claim from God their prizes and they claim from God their, their wealth. No, no, no. He demanded nothing from Christ. He was not presumptuous in the presence of God about what he would claim. He remained lowly. He remained humble. He would receive anything Jesus was willing to dole out. 
And please notice how grave his situation was. Look at verse 15. His son is actually described as crazy. Literally, he was struck by the moon, a lunatic. He was, he was not in his right mind. Now, the gospel of Mark adds that he was dumb, meaning unable to speak. This boy was very ill. He would foam at the mouth. He would grit his teeth. He would stiffen up. Then he would have convulsions. Some say the description looks like epilepsy. But in this instance, it's associated with demon possession. How interesting. Mark says that the demon attempted to kill the boy by throwing him in some pit of fire or water. Well, there are a lot of open fire pits for cooking and for heat. They're common in Israel. And uh, there were open bodies of waters as well, little wells that were there. And so the danger of sudden death was real. This father was not exaggerating. How could this dad ever know when a seizure would become his next and his last? He must have been exhausted, always trying to save his son in some way, constantly having to care for his boy. Simply put, his boy was demon-possessed, suicidal, with multiple intertwined problems. Wow. So far, all this description, as bad as it is, would be no surprise to the readers of the Gospel of Matthew. People often read of others that were coming to Jesus with every kind of illness that there was, every kind of demon-possession. And they were healed. Man, when you try to count up how many were healed by Jesus in the land of Israel, taking these general notes and these, uh, these uh, rounded numbers, it's just thousands and thousands that were healed by the Lord Jesus Christ. But this time, things did not quite work out. It wasn't the same. This time, there was a snag. There was a problem. Next, the Father says, look at verse 16. I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. Ah, there's the twist. If you read backwards in the Gospel of Matthew, you would find that Jesus had delegated his authority to cast out demons to his 12 disciples. And they had been quite successful in their demon possession exorcism ministry. Not since way back in chapter 10, verses 6 through 8, did they encounter the disciples where they said, oops, we could not cast this kind out. Wow. They were perplexed. What is going on here? Why did we run into a kind of demon that we can't handle? And of course, they're trying to get ready quickly to ask the Lord Jesus this question behind the scenes, you know, in private. There might have been a lot of embarrassment on their part here. They tried to heal him. Please understand, that's real. They did try to cast the demon out. Ain't no doubt about that. They attempted. They did the stuff that they always were supposed to do. They had invoked the name of the Lord down upon the evil spirit. They had addressed the demon directly and commanded him to leave. They had waited <laughs> for the demon to leave. But this time... The demon wasn't going anywhere. He was stubborn. He was not moving. The boy was still in the same pathetic condition. Well, they probably even repeated the process. I, I think they might. I mean, if it was me, I would have done that. We're not going to go back to Jesus and ask him how we flubbed this thing. You know, okay, Philip, did you stand over him the proper way you're supposed to? Okay, would you please repeat that? 
Andrew, you need to speak a little louder this time. Let's nail this one. Maybe we're getting tired. I don't know what it is, okay? But the demon was stubborn. They just couldn't get it done. They felt impotent before this demon. Almost like the demon was there, you know, go ahead, make my day. This is the Clint Eastwood of demons. You can't budge him. He's not moving anywhere. By the way, did you notice that the burden for healing this boy was placed on the disciples, not on the father, and not on the boy? Did you see that? You say, so what? The so what is this? So often, so, I'm sorry, often so-called faith healers today explain the failure of their healings by putting the burden on who? The person they're trying to heal. You don't have enough faith. That may be true in certain circumstances. That is not most certainly true all the time. No. James even calls on the elders of the church to come and pray and anoint someone who's sick. Pray with a prayer of faith. Here, the onus and burden is put on those who are doing the healing. Here, the failure belongs to the healers, not those coming for healing. You wonder somehow how some of the faith healers out there deal with that. Well, anyways, they tried how many times, we don't know. That's part of their training to be a disciple of Jesus. They have to know of their weakness. They have to know how to rely on God more. They have to have some failure. They have to come to the end of themselves so they can understand some things don't work out except God does something extra special. There's going to be failure in ministry. There's going to be perplexity. There's going to be times of sorrow. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be suffering and pain and trouble that you have to endure through this world before you get to the kingdom of God in its fullest measure. That's just part of the training, beloved. Sometimes we're going to fail to do the will of God because of the weakness of our faith. And beloved, we've got to learn from that. We don't have to sit and feel guilty about it, but we have got to learn how to live a Christian life of faith because there are going to be moments it is so needed. It is so needed. So how do you spot weakness of faith in another? You spot it by someone who is failing to do the will of God because you can only do the will of God by faith. And whatever is not by faith James writes in James 3, is of evil. We must walk by faith. We must talk by faith. We must send up prayers of faith. Our very love we show to each other is a product of the root of faith. If your faith doesn't grow, your love will grow cold. If your faith doesn't remain strong, the light of your witness will not burn long. It's about your faith, the health of your faith, and how does faith grow, and how does faith become strong. It first comes to a believer because he listens to the Word of God, amen? Faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word of Christ, Romans 10. But it is nurtured and continues to grow in the very way that you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so you learn to walk in Him, Colossians chapter 2. And yes, it's all about faith. It's faith, faith, and more faith. Again, I say it's part of the training of being a disciple. And how do I spot weak faith in myself? Failure to do the will of God 
by faith. God commanded Gideon to attack and drive out the Midianites. At first, he did not think that was a very good idea. He did not want to act. Weakness of faith on display. Thank you, God, for putting the weakness of faith of our man Gideon in the Bible so we can read about it. Because I'm kind of thinking most of us don't even have a faith as strong as Gideon's. And we can learn from him too, right? We can learn from his failure of faith what a joy it is to have a stronger and growing faith. God told Moses, go down to Egypt and deliver my people. And at first Moses said, God, that's a great idea. I volunteer. You either fallen asleep or you haven't read that. No. No. Moses did not volunteer. He did not want to go. He knew he was slow of speech. He thought Aaron, his brother, was a better idea. Moses had weakness of faith, and he failed to do, at first, the will of God. And by the way, the people themselves balked at entry into the promised land. Why? Well, in their case, possibly even unbelief to enter into the the rest and the promises of God. God told Sarah, you're going to have a baby in your old age. And at first, Sarah did what? She laughed. The ladies knew the answer to that question. Weakness of faith. And here the disciples could not cure this man's son. Weakness of faith. You spot weak faith by what it does not accomplish for God. You spot it by the commanded will of God left undone. That brings us to lesson number two. As we continue to learn about how to grow our faith for the sake of whatever God has in your future and how God will use you, looking at this whole idea of faith backwards, how do I go from a weaker faith to a stronger faith? Lesson number two, what God thinks of weak faith what God thinks of it. And oh boy, here it comes because this is, this is hard as well. What does God think of my weak faith when I, when I exercise it? I was thinking about this and even apart from my notes, I thought, you know, and I've shared this with some of you, out of all of the 12 disciples and even the other people of faith we read about in the four Gospels, There's only one of them that got out of the boat during a storm and walked on water at the same time Jesus was out there doing a miracle. There's only one of them, one of the disciples, that actually broke the law of physics and walked on that water. Do you remember who that was? Peter. And then you would expect, since Peter's at the top of his class, for Jesus to look over at him and say, that's the way it's done. Look at him. And look at the guys that remained in the boat or on the shoreline, or at least when they finally got to the shore, to hold up Peter as a great example of what happened. You'll never believe what happened out there in the middle of the Lake of Galilee. Peter, my main man, he got up and he walked on the water. And and Jesus never complimented Peter or set him up as an example in that regard. He just said, why did you doubt? Why did you score less than 100 out of 100, Peter? You know, it tells me is that Jesus so knows God the Father in an intimate way, he knows that there's no good reason whatsoever for any of us to doubt God for one second about anything in our lives or in someone else's life. 
Whatever excuse we have for, attaboy, time, you really trusted God through that tough one. In God's eyes, there's nothing to commend until we just trust Him, until we recognize God, our Father, knows what we need before we ask, and we never should be discouraged. We never should be anxious about our life for one cubit to make it try to make it longer. We just shouldn't. It just is not worthy of God. If we don't trust God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, if we don't trust Him in that regard, have we really come to know Him the way He is? And so we mourn the poverty of our own lack of trust in God. Well, if you look at lesson number two, really, we're going to have to start this next time, but I'll give the intro here. Lesson number two, what God thinks of weak faith, verses 17 and 18, you see something you just don't see a lot in the Bible, and that is a sigh, a disappointment from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 17, Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I put up with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. And I can't wait to talk about the rest of the passage because of the, what we learn about faith there. But yes, Jesus expressed some agitation here. The answer he gives in verse 17 was really an answer to the Father. You, but you can immediately tell that his words went beyond the Father. He was also disappointed at his own disciples, not being able to cast the demon out. And beyond them, Jesus, I think, was even speaking to the whole generation of unbelieving Jews that he had to live among. Get the picture if you can. He comes down off of that mountain, rejoicing and communing with the Father, the feeling of glory all over him because of the transfiguration. And the first thing that he faces is this, this pathetic weakness of faith. And Jesus just stands there with a sigh and some degree of anger, righteous anger, and he calls his generation unbelieving and perverted. He sees the disciples' weakness of faith as in part the product of an entire generation that had lived in unbelief, these Jews. Beloved, that sounds like the generation you and I live with. We've been trained from public school to even maybe your parents to the media to for generations we've been taught more and more that the Bible is not true. Even when you go to church and you don't find churches that completely uphold the Word of God and all of its aspects, the inerrancy and infallibility and sufficiency and power of the Word of God. And we grew up in churches that did not affirm that. And we were taught that only science proves truth and doubt and skepticism were there. And we grew up in an unbelieving generation and that has affected our ability to believe in an invisible God that gets mocked sometimes in school and always in the media, it seems. And your neighbor is skeptical. And the guy that you work with in the cubicle at work next to you, and he is skeptical of the Bible and of God. How long must we live down here and bear a witness among these kinds of people? Boy, it just explains our society now. Jesus calls them perverted. Diastrepho is the term. Distorted, disfigured, twisted. In other words, they're all messed up in their thinking. Their starting point is wrong. Even where they begin, the reason is wrong. You can't even allow them to begin the beginning statement because it's wrong and they can't justify that. They can't even come up with meaning in life from their starting point in their intellectual struggles. That's where we are. Moses called his generation the same thing in Deuteronomy 32 verse 5, diastrepho, messed up in thinking. 
And then Jesus, with his sigh, asks two questions, and they are not meant to be answered by anyone really in particular. He's just saying them kind of to himself, to anyone that would answer it, but really to no one. How, shall, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Put up is another verb. It's on echo, to, to bear up under, to endure. And from these words, we get a glimpse into how it must have felt for a spiritual giant like Jesus Christ to live among spiritual pygmies is what we are. Being with unbelievers, being down here with weak believers was a trial for the Son of God. He was used to dwelling in heavenly splendor. It was trying and painful to live among such a generation. It dragged on his soul. This is, this is a rarity for Christ, to see Jesus so vexed in spirit and express it so openly. The Lutheran commentary by Lenski makes this point. Pain and disappointment ring these words from Jesus' lips. And then the church father Origen in the third century wrote, I think that he was irked at the whole human race on earth for its wickedness, end quote. Well, these two questions express the weight that Jesus had to carry in trying to train leadership for his up-and-coming church and among those who could not even take baby steps of faith at times. That how long continues to echo as part of the question that needed to be answered. How long he had a longing to be back with God the Father. All around him, he had religious leaders mocking him. He had a fickle crowd who loved the benefit of his miracles, but didn't really trust in God and believe in him. Does God really react so negatively to our weak faith? If we had time, I'd turn you back to Numbers chapter 14 and verse 11. They'd been brought to the edge of the promised land. They were told it was a good land. They told that the Lord would fight for them in the land. They had already witnessed the parting of the Red Sea and the giving of manna and many other miracles. What else do you want? And they balked and they did not believe God. They wouldn't go into the promised land right then and there. And so God had them turn around, go out in the wilderness and die body by body for 40 years. And the Lord said to Moses at that time, how long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me? Despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst. I think Jesus may have even been thinking of that passage when he uttered these words. Expressing the, the thought of Psalm 95 and verse 10. Where, where God said, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. God hated that. He hated that unbelief. He hated that weak believing. Everywhere in the Bible, God commands us to trust Him, to listen to His Word, that when things don't work out the way you want in your life, go ahead and obey Him and do what He says. And He gives us example after example of how He worked to the benefit of people, even when they had a weakness of faith, but not as much as if they would have had powerful faith, trusting faith, abiding faith. And I think that God gives us even more precious and powerful promises than they had back then, and still we doubt. 
still, we respond in weakness of faith. May God teach us in our lesson to have stronger faith and to think through what it means to really please God by the exercise of faith. Would you bow with me? Father, thank you for the Bible, your book. Thank you that it does not tickle or urge on our egos. Father, thank you that you challenge us at the core of our being. How much we love you, how much we struggle to believe in you more greatly. We pray not just through prayer and um, the other lessons we've been learning, Father, but in every way you take the members of Hope Bible Church, spur them on, get them out of their slumber, spur them on to love and good deeds as we meet together more frequently. Help us, Father, to take each day, day by day, to obey you, love you, follow you more. Let us just learn to stir up your gifts that you've given to us. In Jesus' mighty name we pray and continue to worship in song. Amen.